Well, it's Friday, and there's never a dull Friday in the existence of the cannabis universe and in pro-cannabis media. Hi, everybody. I'm Jimmy Young, the host of Green Rush Live and also the founder of pro-cannabis media. And we have a very interesting breaking news situation going on here in the cannabis business world. And every third Friday, we happen to have uh, Morgan Fox from Normal joining us, and we have him again today. But I'm also going to be joined by my almost regular co-host, guest host, uh, Josh Kincaid. Josh, how are you doing today? Good, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on again. No, no, no. Happy you're here. And Morgan, I'm guessing you know what we're going to talk about. Do you know what we're going to talk about, Morgan? I'm actually not exactly sure if it's breaking because I've been on the road since 7 a.m. Okay, so, but you knew about the main case uh, and the case of uh, them challenging resident in Maine. And uh, anyway, the the federal court ruled on this. Now, did you know that? I did. Um, I'm still diving into uh, exactly what that means uh, nationally, as well as what that means for uh, the, uh, the jurisdiction of that particular circuit. Um, but it's definitely very interesting to see the dormant commerce clause being applied in such a fashion. Yep. And, uh, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, it's funny, it was a few months ago, we had the uh, law professor from Vanderbilt on Robert, I think it's Robert Mykos. And, uh, he explained how that works and why he thinks it is in place and why, uh, and this pretty much clears the way for interstate commerce in cannabis. And um, I mean, rather than reading the entire um, article from uh, Marijuana Moment and Tom Angela, and we all know him, um, it was basically a 2-1 decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit that affirmed that interpretation, which is broadly meant to prevent states from enforcing laws that unduly restrict interstate commerce unless given specific instruction from Congress, Maine's residency requirement for medical marijuana licensing is an example of an excessive regulation to that end, the panel's majority found. So, again, uh, you know, it, it goes back. To, in fact, I, when I was reading about this and I and David, David Rabinovitz, our, it's just, he's kind of our resident historian, um, the Rohrbacher Far Amendment. Um, is playing a role in this too, I guess, um, as you look at this, because that has been renewed every year since 2014. And Congress has acknowledged that this market may continue to exist in some circumstances free from federal criminal enforcement. And the reaction from the cannabis industry community that I've been reading these comments online feel like this is a great kind of a shot across the bow again to Congress to understand that something has to be happened. There has to be some kind of reform. And I'm going to guess it's going to help you out in the trenches, right? Well, absolutely. But uh, let's look at this uh, historically a little bit. Um, So you go back to 2005 with the the Supreme Court case of uh, Gonzalez v. Raich, where the federal government basically said that they can continue to... uh, prosecute people even if they're in compliance with state law because even somebody having a small amount of plants in their house or you know having a small collective of plants uh with other patients 
is technically uh, a way to or will uh, influence interstate commerce. And this goes all the way back to uh, uh, like an old, old case called Wickard v. Filburn. Um, so that was like kind of the start of this. And then now we have, uh, you know, so many people that are trying to uh, get something done with interstate commerce here. And this ruling, I think, is, uh, you know, very interesting. But I think it's going to take a lot of uh, legal heads to kind of parse out what exactly it means. And it's also only uh, precedent for that particular circuit. Um, and uh, if you look at the issues of uh, what Maine was trying to do, which was trying to keep uh, basically the industry completely uh, in-state and homegrown. Um, you know, that is a you know laudable goal, but at the same time, uh, that also prevents any sort of outer state investment in any of the companies that might be trying to get a leg up, particularly small businesses that don't necessarily have access to either in-state or uh, traditional lending. Yeah. So it's a very complicated issue. It, of course it is. And I don't understand most of it other than uh, what I read. And I'm a good reader. So I'm going to read this again about the appellate court ruling is limited in scope that it currently is only directly affecting states within its jurisdiction, which covers Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Puerto Rico and Rhode Island. How did Puerto Rico get in New England? That's what I'd like to know on that. Does anybody have any idea? Josh, everybody, we're shaking our heads. How did that, how did <laughs> I honestly that? don't know. I mean, just because Alex Cora is the manager of the Red Sox, I mean, I don't get it. I mean, is that the only thing? I'm only kidding. So um, you're right about this. But, um, uh, Josh, I'm sure you have a question um, for Morgan regarding this. I'm, I'm just going to see if I can find any other key moments in this uh, this this article and, and share. Well, just just to get everybody up to speed, dormant commerce clause is referring to the prohibition of the illicit in the commerce clause. So that's against states passing legislation that discriminates against the excessively burdensome interstate commerce. So you have Oregon that passed a law a few years ago that said they can buy and sell cannabis all day long once it becomes federally legal. But to get people up to speed, how can states supersede federal law? So if the whole West Coast, you know, Alaska, Vancouver, British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, California, they're all legal. Why can't we trade in between? It's because federal law says we can't. So the dormant commerce clause, I don't understand how that could even be uh, something that's looked at because of the feds. You can't have state law supersede federal laws. Am, am I right on that, Morgan? Or does this have some other uh, bearing that I'm unaware of? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, but at the same time, um, Every single state law regarding cannabis, uh, whether it be adult use or recreational or uh, or medical, is uh, in violation of federal law. Um, so technically, states could enter into interstate compacts, but they would be in violation of federal law. Um, I feel like most state legislatures, as well as most state uh, regulators uh, for cannabis systems, feel like that might just be a step too far and would bring the hammer down on them. Uh, but they could do it. And uh, and see what happens, just like every single state that has passed a sensible cannabis policy reform has uh, has done so uh, so far. Um, but the dormant commerce clause really kicks in as soon as federal law changes, uh, which means that you can be able to trade in this substance and transport it uh, across state boundaries regardless. So, uh, you know, if. Uh, you know, say, you know, Nebraska continues to be a uh, an illegal state. Um, 
once cannabis is legal federally, uh, you can't like Nebraska would not be able to stop people from shipping cannabis through its territorial borders. Um, and they would the federal government would not be able to stop states from entering into either interstate compacts or uh, just uh, doing business across borders. Um, so it does create a lot of uh, considerations that both, uh, you know, state and federal lawmakers need to think about uh, when they're approaching this. Um, you know, I, I haven't read this uh, opinion uh, in thoroughly yet, um, but I would think that, you know, it doesn't really necessarily say that all of a sudden, like, interstate commerce is legal. Um, and anybody that is saying such, uh, I think you need to really take it with a grain of salt and uh, consult a ton of lawyers right, <laughs> before you start uh, shipping across state lines. Because while it might not be an enforcement priority, you will still be like doing that one thing uh, that the feds are still like really kind of iffy about. Uh, you know, even if they're they're letting states do their own thing, but as soon as you get into interstate commerce, they're going to want to have a much stronger position and a much stronger structure on it. And if people start doing it willy nilly, I fear that it could create uh, serious crackdowns. Idaho well, doesn't even want you to transport hemp. There's gonna, right. a lot of issues just trying to get legal uh, products. <laughs> You're absolutely stuff. right. I mean, there's still people sitting in jail right now in places like South Dakota for moving uh, federally legal hemp products. Yeah. I, I, again, there's there's a lot of issues that that are out there and. Um, but I, I do. I want to continue with this because it says if Maine's residency requirement violates the dormant commerce clause as an unconstitutionally protectionist policy, the same could theoretically be argued about state laws that prioritize licensing people who have been disproportionately harmed by the drug war. So there already is some pushback from the social equity community because um We've got Robert Mikos. He's basically saying uh, court decisions like this one could could put an end to a lot of social equity licensing programs because those social equity licensing programs have had to rely on the same sort of residency discrimination to work. And that's Robert Mikos quote from from Vanderbilt. And then Shaleen Title, who's a very outspoken uh, cannabis advocate and a former uh uh, commissioner for the original cannabis commission in Massachusetts. Now she's my dude. She's awesome. Everybody loves Shalene. I agree. She's now the founder of the cannabis regulators of color coalition, the CRCC. Here's her quote. The takeaway from an equity perspective is that regulators and people concerned about fair markets should understand the case and be prepared for dominoes to start falling, she said. Being informed and prepared is still the best way to counteract legal confusion and chaos that's big, that bigger companies benefit from. You know, Morgan, again, there's definitely a little battle inside the cannabis industry between the multi-state operators and those craft cultivators, the smaller ones. What kind of effect is that going to have on putting pressure uh, to get anything passed in front of our Senate in the next, I don't even know, make it a decade at this point, because it doesn't look like anything's going to happen anytime soon. I'm not even going to hazard a guess. Um, <laughs> but uh, what I will say is that, um, you know, one possible uh, iteration of this ruling is that um, 
small businesses might be able to get uh, additional funding from out of state in places where they were not allowed to do so. I mean, we all know, and you know, like groups like MCBA and others have all been just like harping on this, that, uh, you know, while we're getting very limited benefits and uh, like emphasis on very limited uh, from uh, state level uh, social equity programs, uh, the best way to deal with these problems is to remove license caps. Um, so I'm not sure if this particular ruling would necessarily have an impact on that. Um, but all that being said, um, you know, I think that we're really going to have to like dive into this because I think that it could have, uh, you know, a lot of unforeseen consequences, both good and bad. Um, you know, I, I think that it kind of caught everybody a little bit off guard and uh, nobody is really sure exactly what this is going to mean. What I know for sure is that it's going to continue to be tied up in the courts and this ruling is going to uh, engender a whole lot more lawsuits for any sort of state protectionist structures. And unfortunately, most of the social equity programs that exist right now are based on limited license programs, which by their very nature are a little bit protectionist and might be uh, uh, thrown into a tumult because of this ruling. Uh, but again, only within the jurisdiction of uh, the, that particular circuit. So Andrew Klein, I think uh, you probably recognize, I don't know if you recognize that name. I do senior counsel at Perkins Cole. Uh, yeah, um, I respect Andrew quite a bit. I, I used to work with him at NCIA. So he says there may be other non-protectionist reasons that states choose to ban such commerce under the status quo of federal prohibition. His quote, it could be protectionist. It could also be that those state rules are in place because everyone, including state legislators, legislatures and state regulators have been under the impression that the Controlled Substances Act prohibits interstate commerce. Therefore, they're trying to sort of walk a fine line between abiding by some portion of the federal law while allowing for state sales. Uh, is that does that make sense to you? His quote about um, the I mean, it's it, it's pretty uh, uh pretty complicated and i think that uh you know that, that's a definite good point but you know when you come back to it um every single cannabis system violates the can the controlled substances act that's so different. uh you know it it really comes down to a question of how far are people going to push it yeah and it says klein said this decision should send a clear message to congress that without action on federal cannabis reform that thoughtfully accounts for the complications of interstate commerce between divergent state markets the industry will continue to find itself grappling with issues like this dormant commerce clause case. And, and this is his quote again. This is Andrew. In some ways, this ruling is a shot across the bow for the industry. And in well, I mean, some I ways, it's a shot it's... across the bow for Congress, more, uh, more importantly, because uh, I think that Andrew is absolutely right. Uh, right. You know, a, a system of uh, laws where, uh, you know, a, large and you know multi-million dollar uh, uh economic systems are technically illegal but are being tolerated and the piecemeal system that we have uh is not sustainable and i think that this ruling kind of really over uh, uh you know it highlights the fact that uh federal law is standing in the way now we we have all sorts of systems where state laws differ about things i mean alcohol still is one of those things where uh, there are differences between uh, state to state. And, you know, there are also rules uh, regarding interstate commerce uh, when it comes to alcohol. Like some states will not 
or some states have more stringent rules when you want to import, uh, you know, beer or liquor than other states. They have more strict uh, labeling rules. Uh, you have to go through more hoops and whatnot. And that is clearly going to continue in the cannabis system. Uh, but the fact that we have such a huge dichotomy between state and federal law and states are continuing to move uh, in the right direction on this, more and more states every year. And we're looking at potentially like four or five uh, that could turn uh, in November. Uh, you know, I think that this court ruling is uh, really a, a clear signal for Congress to get off their asses. That's right. hundred percent. He says, this is Andrew again. It's a shot in the arm for the industry because the first circuit recognized that a robust interstate market already exists. That is likely to attract entrance far and wide and is supported by congressional action through the Rohrbacher, uh, Rohrbacher far law or clause or whatever. Um, and, and one other little note here, uh, New Jersey State Senate President Nicholas Kotari uh, filed a bill this month that would authorize the governor to enter into agreements with other legal states to import and export cannabis. So this is just beginning this. And, and you know what? I, Clarence Thomas is sitting there going, see, I told you these laws were screwed up. Right. And he's right. I mean, and it's another reason why. And, and Josh, you probably heard me say this, Morgan. I know you said this. You want to invest okay. you want to invest in the cannabis industry, invest in the cannabis industry law firm. Okay? Because they are going to make money no matter what the law says. Right. Well, I mean, a, a great person to speak with about interstate commerce issues is Adam Smith. Uh, I believe he's still with the Craft Cannabis Alliance uh, up in Oregon, and he's been working on uh, getting states to pass uh, interstate commerce compacts that would be triggered as soon as they were allowed by federal law. Um, and you know, I, I think that at some point, some states might just say, like, eh, "We're just going to go ahead anyway, regardless of federal law." But we'll see. Um, you know, at the end of the day, though, I think that it's really great to see that courts are recognizing that, you know, not only do we have a vibrant multi-state uh, regulated cannabis industry, but interstate commerce is already happening on the unregulated industry and has for decades. <laughs> so, like, do you want to control it or do you want to allow the interstate commerce to only be uh, the purview of underground operators? Yeah. And isn't it interstate commerce when there's an edible product in California that's also available in Massachusetts? It's the same recipe, the same genetics, the same uh, manufacturing. It's all tested. And I mean, it seems to me that is interstate commerce. The difference is they grew it and created it in one state to make it exactly the same as the other state. So it's like a license to recreate that recipe in a legal state. To me, that is that is interstate commerce. Well, I mean, I think that you, you're on to something, but at the same time, intellectual property is not necessarily something that is con uh, uh, held under the umbrella of, uh, of interstate commerce. So, you know, you can use the ideas and the methods and whatnot, but unless actual physical material is crossing state borders, it's not technically interstate commerce. Right. And if it came from a seed, is that a little material or is that uh, still the gray area in this industry? I mean, you'd have to talk to a lawyer about that. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, what's your feeling about seeds and genetics? Because all three of us know there's a vibrant market for genetics on the internet. 
Yeah, I, I would say uh, grab as many as you can and store them in a dark, cool place, because if you try to find tobacco seeds, you won't find any anywhere on the planet. So eventually, whether it's 10 or 20 years, it's going to be really, really hard to find good genetics because, like I said, you can't find it in crops like tobacco anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely agree. And um, you, you start to see proliferation of certain strains and then, uh, you know, other genetic material starts to kind of go by the wayside or disappear. I mean, I'm a hobby grower and I see I save every single piece of genetics that I possibly can just because I don't know if it's going to be available in the future. Wow. Do you have Blue Dream circa 2008? Because that was a pretty phenomenal sativa with its euphoric, energetic, uplifting experience that's been bastardized since with just genetic mutations or whatever. But if anybody's got some Blue Dream from 10 years ago, hit me up. Me too. <laughs> right now I'm rolling a, a 2005 White Widow strain. Nice. And that was the first very week, which is right where my wheelhouse is. <laughs> Blue, Blue Dream was the first strain that I bought legally when visiting mm -hmm. California um, six years ago, eight years ago, something like that. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I do remember it and I do enjoy that strain as well. Hey, Morgan, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, what's the latest on that CAO bill? <laughs> is it, uh, excuse me, I know it's not um, going to go anywhere fast. But um, Cory Baker made a little uh, Cory Booker made a few moves, little noise this week when he said, again, he's more concerned about the expungement issue than the safe banking issue. Is that a uh, a sign of a rift between this, the senators who wrote this bill? Not really. Um, you know, everybody knew that uh, it was going to be pretty much. Uh, like damn near impossible to get all the votes that you need in order to pass comprehensive cannabis policy reform that includes descheduling. Uh, but I think that CAOA, uh, at least in terms of the banking language, does provide a blueprint for what the sponsors are looking for um, in terms of banking, at least, and also provides a ton of awesome language in terms of social justice and uh, restorative justice. Um, you know, right now, it, you know, it's in uh, recess, but there are... Uh, conversations ongoing about exactly uh you know what we would want added to uh safe banking as well as what we would want attached to it uh including both uh federal expungement measures um things like the hope act which would uh, uh facilitate state expungement which is uh, in my opinion far more important uh just because of the numbers uh, and then uh, you know things like veterans access and uh potentially uh you know firearm protections for uh uh, medical patients. Uh, I think that it's going to be very difficult to get anything across the board in the current Congress that actually provides uh, federal funds to uh, cannabis businesses through things like SBA. Uh, but it's definitely something that we're pushing for. And right now we're in a position where we can push for as much as we can possibly get and then draw it back uh, and, you know, have uh, have some tokens to trade. Um, but the conversations are happening, which I, uh, you know, a couple of months ago they weren't and, okay. uh, or at least not uh, to the level that they are at now. And, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of optimism that we're going to get something that is involves, uh, banking, uh, protections for social equity businesses, as well as restorative justice measures, uh, uh across the finish line this year. Uh, wow. it's going to be difficult, but I think it can happen. Wow. I love your optimism. It always makes me feel better after I talk with you, Morgan. I really do. I really appreciate it. 
and I look forward to it. Well, we just got to let people know to contact their lawmakers so that their lawmakers know that this is something that they actually care about. Yeah. And I'm actually seeing polls showing more and more states uh, favorably um, basically supporting legalization or at least decriminalization of the plant. Uh, So the movement hasn't gone backwards at all. It's moving forward and it's gaining more and more momentum. And this particular ruling, again, I think will eventually put a little more pressure on our lawmakers to actually get off vacation and get back to work. You get it, right? I know you get it. I, I mean, I'm enjoying the break a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> I get it. I know. I, I appreciate it. Look, and everybody deserves it. It's a summertime and it's been one of the hottest summers on record. At least they do recognize that there actually ha- is a concern about climate change now. Uh, th- that being said, um, it, it still was a 50-50 split with the vice president uh, making that vote to, to get that climate change bill passed. And I I'm just I'm very discouraged about our system right now, but I also know it's the best one in the world. I'll be patient and I'll make it. We'll we'll get through it. In the meantime, uh, we're just past four. We're way past 420. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to talking with you again next month and bring that optimism with you. Will you please? I love that. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I've been doing this for a long time and it's always like, you know, uh, one step forward, one step back, one step forward, one step back. But Things are heading in the right direction. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, victory is on the horizon. When it's going to happen, who knows? But uh, we can't let up. Right. Is that cannabis standard time? I think that's what it is. All right. <laughs> hey, Morgan, thank you. We're going to take our break. We're going to come back. We're going to continue this discussion with some of our uh, regulars on this show and some people that haven't been on for a while. So don't go away. Green Rush Live continues after this. With that, we're going to roll this one up. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Cannabis Health Radio is a podcast about stories from people around the world who abused cannabis to deal with serious ailments, many of them life-threatening. My name is Ian Jessup. My co-host, Corey Yelland, is no stranger to the devastating emotional impact faced by so many people receiving a death sentence diagnosis from a doctor. Told she only had months to live with anal canal cancer, Corey researched and immediately began using cannabis oil to eliminate her cancer and has been cancer-free for more than a decade. She told herself that if it worked, she would spend the rest of her life helping others, which she does tirelessly every day. When you listen to our podcast, you'll hear many stories like Corey's, along with others who have used cannabis oil for many more ailments besides cancer, such as chronic pain, PTSD, MS, and many, many more. As one of our guests said, Your podcast gave me the confidence to save my own life. We regularly get messages from listeners who have heard our podcast and use cannabis to solve a serious health issue of their own or that of a loved one. We hope you listen to these stories and be as inspired and moved as we are with each and every episode.